coming this evening to think of our theme of sorrow, the second part of our study, thinking this morning of happiness and coming this evening to think of sorrow. And perhaps sorrow is a subject that we are more comfortable with. Perhaps we are affected by the way news is reported within our society. There is a focus on sad stories and sorrowful stories. And perhaps we have adjusted ourselves to a familiarity with that side of human experience. Maybe we're more comfortable sympathizing with someone than congratulating someone. Someone who gets nine GCS, nine, A, nine A's in their GCSE, we are uncomfortable commending them. Will they, will they be proud as a result of our praise and commendation? We're far more comfortable in, in sympathizing with a teenager who fails their driving test. And so this topic is connected to us. We know sorrow, grief, sadness, loss, care, woe, anguish, misery, languishment, Bible words, but not only Bible words, dimensions of our own experience of sorrow. Our English word comes from an ancient German word meaning care, and that in itself emphasizes the antiquity of this emotion in human experience. Because sorrow has always belonged to humanity ever since the fall, where it is mentioned. And we are familiar in our society and conversation with phrases such as more in sorrow than in anger, in connection with discipline. And better safe than sorry in connection with care in our actions. And many have spoken about the universal nature of sorrow. It makes us all children again. Destroys all differences of intellect, Emerson said. Some of our sorrows are deep and the sufferer is reluctant to rehearse them. And I thought about that on, on Wednesday and spoke to Lorna about this, asking her uh, to come along and, and share her experience. And it's not a new thing to reflect on sorrow in that way. Virgil was asked by the queen to, to recall and describe the fall of Troy. And he felt that the pain of reliving that tragic moment in his history. And he says... A grief too much to be told, O Queen. You bid me renew. And that sentiment has been experienced and uttered by us perhaps as we have relived and thought over and shared our sorrow and our trouble. And it is difficult and hard for us to deal with and live with Everyone can master a grief, one writer says. But she that has it. The impact of sorrow upon us affects our life, changes our experience, influences our choices and priorities. And some have described that the transformation for, for good and others have dwelled on the transformation 
for weakness and need that it has brought. Some have thought that help is found in an honest friend and a kind friend. Euripides claims the best remedy for grief is the counsel of a kind and honest friend. Others claim that earth is no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And perhaps some of that has been true in your experience or perhaps it hasn't been effective in the sorrows that you've encountered. Shakespeare in one place addresses sorrow and desires that its element is below. Down thy climbing sorrow, thy elements below. But sorrow is among us and with us. And it will not go away in our experience. It is there. One writer says, farewell sadness. Good day sadness. You are written in the lines of the ceiling. We close our eyes at night in a world marked by sorrow. And we open them in the same type of world. Then coming to the, the book of Proverbs and listening uh, to the wisdom here, uh, we're thinking of sorrows which we can avoid. That there are many sorrows in our life and experience and, and congregation which are absolutely unavoidable. They've been thrust on us. That bereavement, that illness has been external to us in, in, the, in the providence of God. But, but this evening we're looking at sorrows which are avoidable by us. And the seven sorrows which are mentioned to us here in Proverbs are set up like road signs to warn us, don't go down this road because it will bring sorrow to you. And this sits alongside of our sermon this morning, the positive side of, of, of embrace this and happiness True joy and happiness will come to you. This is saying the same thing from the negative side. Don't embrace that. Because if you do, sorrow will come to you in your life and in your experience. And so we come to, to think of these, these warnings in the, the book of Proverbs, uh, which is showing us the dangerous roads which we are not to take in our experience. And I've tried to group them in, in two ways. One in relation to other things and then in relation to other people. So there's two groups of sorrows which are mentioned here in this book of Proverbs. Firstly then in relation to, to other things. And the first one we, we note in chapter 15 verse 27 is greed for unjust gain. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household but he who hates bribes will live so here's a, a sorrow that's identified for us if you are greedy for unjust gain your family your house will be full of sorrow there are two ways this proverb can cause sorrow or should be understood as causing sorrow one is the constant desiring for gain which prevents us from being content with what we have. The proverb mentions unjust gain, but, but we can lower that, we can water that down to, to desiring gain in any sense. If we're greedy for gain, for, for more wealth, if we're greedy for more wealth, even if it's legitimate gain, 
We will bring sorrow to our heart and to our house. We will be constantly filled with a sense of discontentment with what we have. For some, we're greedy of the gain of new goods. We're repeatedly saying we need to change the car. We need a new sofa. We need a bigger TV. We need a, a new kitchen. When the goods that we have are working well. Whoever is greedy for gain. And more so, whoever is greedy for unjust gain. Troubles his own house. But the other way this proverb is true is that that the greed is realized, it's achieved. They obtain the unjust gain. And subsequently, what they long for, what they crave, this is the irony of the whole thing. They're thinking, I'll be landed then. I'll be happy then. I'll be content then when I master that thing, when I lay hands on that desired object. In that moment of grasping, just like Eve and Adam in the garden, the sorrow comes to them. People cannot live with themselves. Or the legitimate increased gain that they they, they desired and and were greedy after, evident in their Ferrari in the drive or their six-bedroom country house, becomes the envy of others who scratch their car, paintball their house, or they can't sleep at night worrying about the goods that they have. They've been greedy for gain, but when they get it, all these kind of worries which they'd never experienced before Trouble their hearts and lives and minds. They bring trouble on their family, on their house, on their life by gain. Achan is a biblical example of this, isn't he? He was greedy of unjust gain. The irony is that in the next city that they attacked, God said, you can take anything. It was just the first city, Jericho, that that Taking any goods was forbidden. But Achan couldn't wait. He was greedy of unjust gain. And we know the trouble that came to him. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, was greedy of those fine garments uh, that that came with with Naaman and his servant. And we remember Gehazi going after uh, the the servant of of Naaman and, uh, and getting those garments and leprosy. Coming to him, whoever is greedy of unjust gain brings trouble to his house. One example is given in in the text, he who hates bribes will live. Here's an example of unjust gain. Accepting a bribe to throw a match, to pass a planning application, to vote for a policy in parliament, is unjust gain and it will bring trouble because the people who accept those bribes they are in the pocket of the briber and from that day on they can be blackmailed at any time and made to do far worse things out of fear of exposure they bring sorrow we bring sorrow to our home and thus the proverb is saying A small increase in our earthly comforts is more than cancelled out by the trouble that unjust gain will bring us. Winning the national lottery, drugs money, fraudulent claims, 
all brings trouble to those greedy of unjust gain. Secondly, carelessness. Chapter 22, verse 3. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Here's another sorrow that we can avoid. It's living unguardedly, throwing caution to the wind, going on regardless, without thinking. Such a person is described in the proverb as simple in contrast to the prudent here who have forethought, acuteness, and good sense. The simple do not foresee the danger which the prudent do, and so suffer for it. Perhaps this is illustrated in some people who have a maximum mortgage on a low interest rate, but the end of that low interest term is coming. And their mortgage is going to be set at a far higher interest rate and will bring all kinds of sorrow into their home. They did not foresee that interest rates would rise despite the massive expense the government shelled out during COVID times. Are we living carelessly, financially, not preparing for retirement, hoping to wing it, or worse, expecting to live off our children? Are we living carelessly, physically, neglecting attention to our sleep, to our diet, to our exercise? We will suffer for it. Are we living carelessly, romantically, going out with someone you should not, who's dampening your love for God? You will suffer for it. Are you living carelessly, socially, spending time with friends who are not a good influence on you? We will suffer for it. Or are you living carelessly, spiritually, by putting off becoming a Christian? You will suffer for it. Thirdly, drunkenness, chapter 23, verse 29. What a question, what a list of six questions this is. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long at the wine. Here is another source of sorrow in relation to things. And it's the sorrow that comes from drunkenness. Six descriptions of sorrow are identified for us here in this proverb as a result of drunkenness. Woe means trouble. Sorrow is mentioned, this word is mentioned only here in the Old Testament and literally is alas. It's the sigh of frustration of a life gone wrong by alcohol addiction. Strife means feisty, quarrelsome, disruptive to the community and family. Complaining expresses anguish over one's lot in life. Wounds is needlessly inflicted cuts and bruises. The effects of losing motor coordination or picking fights with others. And redness of eyes, the bloodshot eyes from staying up for long hours. If we want a poignant real life example 
of these multiple sorrows which drunkenness brings to a life. You may have it in your family or in your street or in your workplace or you will find it today in the life of Matthew Perry who played Chandler in Friends and has died at the age of 54. And what an irony is here. People talk. He talked about drowning the sorrows of his childhood, the separation of his parents, hard working and who neglected him, a latchkey child he called himself. And he talked about drowning those sorrows in alcohol to obliterate his troubled childhood. But actually, he increased his sorrows. There's a book on the rack there dealing with bad memories. And it's a great book. It looks at the different ways that you and I can deal with bad memories and experiences in the past. Some try to obliterate them as the person here in this proverb and as Matthew Perry did. Others misuse the memory to seek revenge. But the book says what we're to have is a redeemed memory. We're to take the bad experience. Receive God's forgiveness for it for ourselves or for others. And seek his grace and strength to move on. Sorrow from other things. Being greedy for unjust gain from carelessness of dangers or from drunkenness. And then secondly, we we look at a, a group of proverbs that describe sorrow that comes from other people, perhaps a relation to them or their relation to us. The first is cruelty. Chapter 11, verse 17. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man Hurts himself. What a statement that is. A cruel man. He's been cruel to others. But he hurts himself. Sorrow emanates from cruelty. In this verse the effect of cruelty is in contrast to the effect of kindness. In the first part of the proverb. Kindness rewards the one who does the loving thing. Kindness is described as self-benefit. A man who is kind benefits himself. And we've known that as we've helped others and shown charity to needy causes. There's been benefit for us. But by contrast to that, cruelty is self-punishment. And that hurt to us can come in many ways. It could be hurt to our pocket by being fined by magistrates for cruelty to animals or birds or humans. It could be hurt socially as a community rises up against a person who has hurt his livestock, who's neglected caring for his donkeys. It could be hurt physically by the person or animal hurt getting revenge on us. I think this is the last time I'm mentioning Benjamin Palmer, but I hope I persuaded you to go out and buy this book tomorrow. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, when he was young, uh, he used to scare the horses in, his, in the fields around his house. 
He was warned about this, but he continued to do this. And one day, the horse flicked up its hooves and caught him right in the nose and the cheek, and he bore the scars for the rest of his days. A man who is cruel hurts himself. It could be hurt in our conscience. Cain was troubled for his cruelty to his brother. The brothers of Joseph who sold him into slavery eventually, they were racked with guilt for their wickedness. Charles Bridges has a prayer for us interspersed into his wonderful commentary on Proverbs. And we can pray it as I read it here. Oh my God, save me from the tyranny of my own lust. And may thy perfect image of mercy be my standard and my pattern. Let us be kind, not cruel. A second source of sorrow from others is trust of strangers. This is chapter 11, verse 15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. But he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Here's another source of suffering from others. This is putting up security for a stranger. Becoming too friendly and trusting with someone too quickly. This proverb is exhorting us to take time to evaluate our friends. And in our world of multiple scams, this proverb is so relevant. Sorry, this is the last illustration. And it's an interesting one from Benjamin Palmer. He went into a second-hand bookshop when he was relatively young. And he went to buy a book. He only had a $50 bill in his wallet. And he handed it over to, to the, the bookseller. Now the staff member claimed that he had to go and get change. But disappeared. Another staff member said to him, he'll never be back. But Palmer was desperate. He hadn't bought his ticket home. He needed the change from the, the, this, this purchase of the book. And so he waited in the shop. And he waited for six hours. He was six foot, you know. And he caught sight of this guy. And he got hold of him. And he persuaded this man to give him his, his money back. But what's interesting is that Palmer took a life lesson from that experience, and it maybe balances up what we're thinking about in this proverb. From that moment on, Palmer determined to give money to any stranger that asked him. He never forgot that experience of absolute desperation when he was in another city with no money whatsoever and no way of going home. His thought then was that he would go to a minister and ask him for funds to buy his ticket home. And he determined on that day that he would always give money to any stranger that asked him. He says... Twelve of them 
might never repay me and are just rascals. But the 13th really needs my help. This proverb is saying, generally, take your time in friendships and relationships. Get to know someone. But hold that in in, in balance with a kindness and a generosity to those who profess to be in need. And Bridges, as his bent is, brings us to Jesus and the cross through this proverb. He comments, the blessed Jesus, he became surety for a stranger. The proverb is saying here, don't become surety for a stranger. Bridges says, but Jesus, he became surety for a stranger. We had the debts we owed by our sins and our transgressions of God's law that, that, that punishment that we deserve. But Jesus becomes our surety, our guarantee, the promiser to pay our debt. And he goes to the cross and takes upon himself all the punishment that we deserve. And Bridges ends, what then remains for us but to fall down before his grace and to spend our days as we shall spend our eternity in adoring this wondrous manifestation of his love. A third way in which we can experience sorrow, and this is dwelt on a lot in Proverbs, is adultery. Chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Here is sorrow coming to us by adultery. The contrast in this context is between adultery and stealing. There are decrees of sin, as we know in the catechism says. We excuse a thief, the Proverbs say, if he steals Boys and girls, I had a friend, I have a friend, uh, he was a landscape gardener and he's done this for many years. And many years ago, uh, during the troubles here in Northern Ireland, he was landscaping down in South Armagh. And he was working at a large garden and it was extensive and he was away from the the central house for, for many of the hours of that day. But he used to take along a lunch, a flask, and a box of sandwiches and cakes and goodies in this box. And one day, his box disappeared. And he maintains, it wasn't a dog or a fox. It was a soldier out in patrol who was starving and just took his, his, his lunch. And he laughed about it, just as this verse says. We don't blame a thief who's desperate, who needs food in that instance. If they're caught... They'll be punished for it. But by contrast to that, someone who steals a man's wife or husband, they destroy themselves. They get wounds and dishonor and disgrace. And again, the irony is here, isn't it? The deceitfulness of sin. The individual longs for pleasure and thinks 
pleasure will, will come to them, more pleasure, but it ends in pain. The shame, the dishonor, the brokenness, the trouble. And what a helpful warning this is. In the UK, 25% of married men, 18% of married women commit adultery. It's all around us in our town. We experience it all over. And here's this proverb showing us that the end is sorrow, dishonor, disgrace. And lastly, the last source of sorrow that we're thinking of this evening as an unfaithful associate. Chapter 25, verse 19. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Seen as the village court, chapter 25, verse 18. The treacherous person is one who bears false witness against his neighbor. Time of trouble in the text is the trial itself. The accused had hoped that the witness, the neighbor, would vindicate him, would tell the truth, but instead gives false evidence. The treacherous man. And it leaves the innocent man in pain. He thought he had a reliable witness. Someone who would speak out in his defense. But when the moment came, perhaps under pressure, perhaps bribed, perhaps without backbone, person proved to be a treacherous man. The tooth in our gum, it's there. But we can't use it. We can't put pressure on it. It causes us pain and trouble. If we chew on it, that pain shoots up the side of our head. We flinch. And this is what it's like trusting a treacherous man. We think we can rely on them. We can depend on them. But when the moment comes, they let us down and it causes us sorrow and trouble and difficulty. I was interested at the Ministering for the Masters conference that one of the speakers addressed this very point of reliability. He spoke at the end of, of those who believed that they were called and what they should do, those who wondered if they were called and what they should do. But lastly, he talked about those who realized in that day that they weren't called. And what should they do? There were elders there. And he encouraged them to be reliable men, to be dependable, to be people whom their fellow elders and their congregation could depend upon. Let's be dependable in our family, in our work, in our church. Parents will maybe promise their children something in this week of holidays. Let's fulfill it. Maybe Wednesday is the day that you are tasked to bring scones into work. Do it. The role that we have in our congregation. Let's complete it. How many of these sorrows can we avoid then? All of them. They're not the sorrows imposed on us from without in God's providence. These are sorrows which we choose, which we enter into, which we initiate. And so a lot of suffering can be avoided in this world as we follow Christ's word here. 
The Apostle Peter, you remember, speaking to believers in the first century who were suffering for their faith, exhorts them not to add to their suffering by behaving in a sinful way. But perhaps as we close, you have an enigma emerging in your mind. You say, Jesus, was he not called the man of sorrows? Yet he obeyed God perfectly. Where did all the suffering come from for him? And we know it came from him bearing our sin. He went down into death and suffered the judgment of God on our sin. Like me, you've possibly been scrutinizing that that bomb that the Israelis are going to use in the tunnels in Gaza that seals up those tunnels. The two chemicals coming together that will seal the tunnels up. And what is in the tunnels will will not be able to, to come out again. And this is how we're to view the suffering of Jesus going down into the cross and the grave that our sin and the judgment of our sin is down there now and will never appear again. Jesus has died in our place and the divine vengeance is enclosed in the tomb, never to be released. But in this world, we will know sorrow. We will know sorrow from the providential dealings of God in our world and in our life. But Proverbs here is showing us how to minimize our sorrow. How to avoid sorrow. What an insight into our God this is. The atheist needs to to listen to this point. And we need to see it too. That our God, far from wanting to increase suffering in our lives, he wants to reduce suffering in our lives. And gives us these blatant warnings. Don't go down that road or you'll suffer. And one day in his grace, he'll completely and eternally remove sorrow from us when he takes us into the glorious presence of his Son.